Wait. Wait. Wait, 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 wait. Hold on. If you're going to learn how to fight, then learn with a real weapon. Not with a toothpick. Everybody and welcome to the Big Hairy Eyeball Podcast, the podcast that feels your pain, but only after receiving permission first. I'm Pete Pollock. I'm your host. And this week on the show, David C. Smith. Now, David is a writer, an author, a raconteur, a guy who's uh, who came from uh, um, rural Ohio uh, to make it big in the big city. And uh, he's done a lot of different stuff, uh, but he's, uh, he's mostly a writer and he's done editing and things like that. And uh, I, I used to work with him at a previous job. We've stayed in touch and I got a copy of his latest book and I said, I really want to talk to him about the book and I want to talk to him about his, uh, his past because he's had some pretty interesting stories and some, I don't know, unique things happen to him, which is what this whole show is kind of about. So uh, I, I will say that I'm doing something a little bit different this week. I, uh, when I talked to Dave, we, uh, we went on a little long. Um, we, we had a lot of stuff to say. I, I, had, I, I probably too much always have something to say. And uh, Dave had a lot of stuff to say. We, you know, we go out to lunch afterward and still continue the conversation. So it was one of those things where it kind of went, went on, and I don't think it's a bad conversation. I don't think it was bad that it went long. In fact, when I was uh, looking at it later, um, I, I decided I was going to edit it down just because I figured, well, how long does somebody want to hear the two of us talk? I, I don't know. Um, I try and aim for 45 minutes to an hour, and uh, we went longer than that. And as I was going through and trying to figure out where to cut, you know, the conversation was one of those things where everything kind of built on previous stuff. So, you know, we're calling back and, and this happened, that happened, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, uh, I, I looked at it and I said, well, I've got two choices. I can, I can cut very, very little in order to try and make this work, which really isn't going to make it that much shorter. The whole interview is like an hour and a half. Um, or I can just split it into two shows. So I figured, you know what? I'm just going to split it into two shows. Those are bite-sized pieces. So the first one goes like 45 minutes. The second one goes like 45 minutes. I'll have that in two weeks. And I will, uh, I, I think I'm probably just going to, you know, I, I found a good place to cut and I'm going to probably just back it up a little bit. So it'll be kind of like, uh, you know, next week when you listen to it, it'll be like, uh, you know, previously on the David C. Smith podcast, we'll, we'll catch up to speed just a little bit, just to give some context. But I think for the most part, I think that's going to work better and uh, it made more sense to me. I didn't want to, sh- you know, kind of give Dave short shrift because um, we had a good conversation and I didn't want to, you know, make you guys try and I, I know... There's, there's a million podcasts out there. A lot of people listen to podcasts. They listen to five or ten or whatever. And, and if you're listening to mine, I really, really appreciate that. But I'm not looking to demand an hour and a half of your week in addition to all the other stuff that you're doing. So it seemed more fair to everybody to just do it that way. And it gives me a little breathing room because, you know, I'm trying to keep up with, uh, you know, getting people recorded and uh, 
And, uh, you know, it, it's a process. It really is a process. It's, uh, I've got a number of people who are on the list to record and I, you know, I'm not running out <laughs> by any means, but, uh, you know, you're always trying to schedule people and, you know, figure out when they can make it. And so, uh, it, it is a little bit of a, a, a little side career that this has turned into for me. No complaints. I knew it was going to be that way, but this gives me a little more breathing room too. So, I think it's a, I would describe this as a win, win, win situation all the way across the board. So this week, it's part one of David Smith, David C. David C. Smith, part one of Mr. Smith goes to the Big Hairy Eyeball podcast. And you will be hearing that right after this little musical interlude. Go wherever you wherever you want. This is a safe space. Sounds good. At least until it goes out into the world. There you go. And then it will no longer probably be a safe space. Well, I'm happy to talk about the book and about Howard because I learned some things about him and became more. Well, aware I think of you must things. have because there's nobody, no way anybody could have known all this stuff. Right. About, I don't think Robert E. Howard's parents knew all this <laughs> stuff about Robert. I relied e. upon some really good sources, though. I, I must say, uh-huh. I mean, you know. Um, all the people that I credited at, uh, in the acknowledgments mm-hmm. um, were enormously helpful. And w- one of the things I, I definitely decided to do, once my publisher suggested that I write this book, right. he was looking for someone to write um, a good general biography um, for more or less a mainstream audience for people who maybe had heard of Robert E. Howard and had heard of Conan the Barbarian. Right. I, want, I was going to say, yeah. uh, for no, people who don't know the name, Exactly. Conan, they they know, you know Conan the Barbarian. And in, and in many ways, that's, that's the, the least important thing that it did artistically. You know, it was the most commercially successful. You know, or, Isn't that or, always the case? Exactly, yeah. Although, although there, was, there was one character that was more commercially successful for him in the 30s when he wrote, and that was some of his, uh, they almost like, like um, tall tale Western burlesques uh-huh. um, that are still so entertaining to read. You, you'll laugh out loud when you read them, you know. So toward the end of his career, when he was writing Conan and these Western burlesques, he kind of came really into his own. But most people have, have heard of Conan. <clears throat> and right. think of the comic books or Arnold Schwarzenegger or something. Right. And, and because of the perception of Howard over, over the years, over the last several decades, He's become kind of of indistinguishable from Conan. People think he's this big bloke, you know, right? Uh, who who wrote these almost a caricature of himself? Exactly, a caricature of himself, you know. And um, to some degree, in his little town, he did that because it helped him distance himself from people who thought he was kind of a weirdo, right? Um, so he kind of like so I gave him some some space, you know, in in which to write this stuff. Um, <clears throat> but he 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 started out uh, essentially as a poet. Um, uh, ballads, um, old style, you know, narrative poetry. He grew up with that. His his mother, when he was born, his his mother um, read poetry to him, you know, from from the beginning. So he imbibed all that. Mm-hmm. And um, when he got to be a teenager, 
Um, what he was interested in was writing adventure stories. There was a pulp magazine called Adventure, mm -hmm. um, and he bought every issue when it came out. I, I think it was a weekly. Um, so he put down his 15 cents or whatever to buy Adventure right. magazine. So this is this is a far cry from thinking of this brute type guy who wrote Conan the Barbarian. Right. The the roots of his of his writing and his sentiments toward writing are very very different from from all that. So I wanted to, those are some of the points I wanted to make in, in writing the book for general readership to kind of awaken them to the fact that <clears throat> the guy came from this interesting background and his, he was determined to become a working professional writer during right. his lifetime. Right, <clears throat> And that, that was something that, uh, that I noticed. I didn't realize that he had written so much poetry and things like that. But I do, I do <clears throat> want to get, I want to get into this book in depth, but I want to, I sure. want to get to it since it's the most recent thing you've did. Oh yeah. You've yeah. did. You've okay, did. I do know how to talk. I, I, that I had I've, done. I've been so. practicing <laughs> English as a second language You're here. talking to an English uh, teacher. <laughs> the, the, uh, the, mo the most recent thing yeah. you've done. Um, so let's uh, let's go back to the beginning for you because oh you've written a lot of books and, and, oh, yeah. and I did want yeah. to touch on uh, on some of that stuff. Sure. Um, you you were born in Youngstown, which I've never been to, but I picture that as kind of an on the waterfront kind of a place. Is it that... kind of is. Yeah, okay. it's Youngstown, Ohio. It's it's in the Steel Valley, uh -huh. meaning the 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 Mahoning River, and it's it um, is very close to the Pennsylvania border. So this is. Um, Eastern Ohio, Western Pennsylvania. It's uh, heavily working class, very blue collar, shot in a beer. Mm -hmm. um, probably the most important thing. Similar is to what Friday Robert E. Howard, it, I picture, it, grew it, up it, in. It is. I, it's, when I started. I was drawing some parallels. No, I, I noticed that too when, growing up, because, or when I was writing the book, because growing up, it, it was. Youngstown could be a rough place. Now, where mm -hmm. I grew up was, was kind of out. It wasn't even the suburbs then. It was it was quasi-country, you know. Uh -huh. um, so I wasn't right in the city, you know, and I didn't grow up with this city mentality. Um, but, yeah, when I was growing up in, in the 60s, I mean, there were groups. It was, it was murder town USA mm -hmm. um, because we had um, – there were two factions um, – they kind of fight o fought over the turf for Youngstown, and it was the Cleveland faction and the Pittsburgh faction of um, of these organized gangsters. crime. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It was organized crime, and and uh, apparently the roots of it are that are that Youngstown. Going back to Prohibition, Youngstown was the halfway point between Chicago and New York. Uh -huh. So when they would bring in these 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 trucks of of contraband, you know, illegal liquor or whatever, mm -hmm. uh, you could make that long drive to Youngstown. If you were hauling this freight, and then stay over, you know, for a night, you're right, right there. So it was like the the crossroads for this for this kind of criminal, you know, this criminal activity and this right. crime stuff. Um, so plus just the just the fact that it was a strongly unionized town, and it and it did. Um, it produced steel, you know, it was, right. it was a rough town in that regard. And the regard. unions had their own ties. And the unions had their own ties, so so it, it, it was pretty rough. It was pretty rough. Um, some of the guys that I got to, to, to know later, after mm -hmm. I got out of college and, and was working downtown, because I wanted to live real life, you know, I didn't, right. you know. So, um, yeah. I, crazy I, I, idea. Exactly. Yeah, what a crazy idea. But I rubbed shoulders with, with, with a, lot of, a lot of that, you know, those, those kind of folks, and, and largely found them very nice, yeah. you know. Just <laughs> I imagine they're, you know, I mean, I, I, they've been portrayed in Hollywood, and, and I imagine it's true. If you're not crossing them or ha That's they exactly have some right. reason to, you know, be mad at you, then you're you're probably okay for the most part. But you don't really want to get too up in their business because then that's you, when you really don't. go south. Yeah. yeah, you really don't. One of the most entertaining 
I guess it's entertaining, interesting stories, was that a guy that I worked with in the stockroom that I worked with at the time, this had been in the mid-'70s, um, one of his best buds, they had a birthday party for him or something. Mm-hmm. And so this this is the kind of ceremony where, like, you get the friendship ring or something like this. Right. And this, this guy gave the guy that I worked with some kind of expensive watch or something to make this bond or whatever. And they had a lot of interesting types of people sitting around the table, you know, mm-hmm. and we drank. And, and the guy I worked with invited me there just because he worked with me and he liked me and everything. And so, um, so here I met this guy, you know, this gangster, tough guy, or, you know, whatever he's into, you know, mm-hmm. it's a very nice man, you know, we chatted yeah. and everything. And come, uh, come Monday morning, I asked my coworker about him and he said, oh yeah, he got shot in front of the McDonald's on Mahoney Avenue. So, oh. <laughs> so I was like, wow. really? Wow. Kind of on his, like, you, you were with him in the, in yeah. the last hour. I just, you know, I thought he was a very nice man. You know, I right, right, right. So, so I was maybe kind of naive, but but that also kind of kept me like in a safe space, you know. With right. Because I wasn't about to get into their business and be interested in that. You know, I I'm think that generally is for the best. I think so too. I, I know my dad in his business. He had, you know, he was in construction and uh, remodeling and things like that. Oh he yeah. Cross paths with y- a yes, few you people. Do. But it was like, just going to do my job, keep my head down, what, and get my, my money at the end. And exactly. Go, I'm that done. Was, that was, <laughs> that was my dad. I mean, there's, a, there's an interesting, when we were growing up, mm-hmm. um, there's no, because my dad was in construction. He worked for a company that did, it was asbestos, in fact, did insulation and, you know, heating and, and ventilation and, right. and all that stuff um, for everything from jails to hospitals to home, you know, any, any kind of commercial construction. And... Um, there was an episode, I was about 11, 12 years old, and we lived out like on this dead end road in quasi country, you know. Right, right. It used to be an area where the rich folks, quote unquote, from Youngstown would go for the summer because they could cool off, you know, among the the cherry trees and the apple blossoms right, and right, stuff. Yeah. It's a lot of open land. So so after after the war, you know, in the 50s and 60s, people built built homes there. So that's where I grew up. It was kind of countryish, which is a lot of fun for me and, and my friends. Mm-hmm. Um but one night he kept getting up and looking out the the front window of the house as a car would go. But he'd get up and take a look, you know, and the car would pass by. I said, okay. And a couple minutes later, car, car would pass by and he'd get up and look. And I said, what, what's going on? He said, oh, I thought somebody might pay a visit. That's all. Years later, we asked him about that. And what had happened was that he had been approached by someone to, to he, he'd never clear on what it was. It was like, we're going to sell you watered-down cementers, you know, right, right, whatever so, it yeah. might be. You know, we want you to buy our stuff. We're going to make you an offer you literally can't <laughs> Exactly. We want you to buy our stuff rather than that guy's stuff, you know. He was a country boy. In his day, he was the best shot with a twenty-two in Liberty Township, and he told him to go straight to hell, you know. Uh-huh. And um, so he stood up to them, and, and he wasn't going to play their games, you know, which, as it turns out, is the best thing he could have done. It's like, you know, you're not welcome here. I'm not going to get involved with this stuff. Right. Go on down the road. Once you start else. to go down that path. Exactly, you know. And so we, we learned about that later on. And But, uh, yeah, that's, you know, so there was it was always in the environment there, you know. Right, right. It was always in, in the environment. And I'm sure I picked up some of that. Um, uh, inevitably, you know, when mm-hmm. it came to write the kind of fiction fiction that I did. I remember a, a buddy of mine from college and I, um, he also was more into the arts, and he actually had a book of poetry published, and we'd talk about, you know, classic movies and all this kind of stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, we, we tried for a couple of years to find a little bar or a saloon, quiet place at that time, you know, in the 70s in Youngstown, Ohio, where we could just go, and just chat about these things that interested us, you know, because right. we had been to college and talked about these things, you know. And uh, no, we, we couldn't. It was always loud. It was working <laughs> class. You know, it was shot in a beer. Boisterous. And boisterous. 
and as interesting as that was, and as much as that was part of our background, it was kind of like, we're not here to play pool, you know, right. or to get drunk. We just want to sit in a booth and a just corner talk, booth somewhere, somewhere, and, and yeah. just I don't know, talk about Tolstoy or something, you know. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, but that that was the environment. We we actually we actually found a quiet place when it was a very icy night one night on Mahoney Avenue, and and him and some of his buddies and I, and we pulled into this this saloon, and there was nobody there. Oh. Except, except the guy running it, the bartender, you know. And so we go My in. My band has played to a few of those. No, you go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think I, I mean, that audience reads some of my books. Too, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, we go in, and a couple of guys start shooting pull, and and you know, Rich and I sitting over here doing something, and uh, whatever's on TV. This is way before cable was local stations, and John says, you know, can we just can we turn on? It's a Sunday night. Can we turn on Masterpiece Theater? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I don't care. <laughs> so we're watching, you know, some some murder mystery or something. This is like you know, a surreal moment in a, history. A surreal moment, yeah. you know, and this isn't a shot in a beer bar, you know, yeah. where you don't you Young don't go Stone, there to watch. Yeah. yeah, you know, you go there to watch, you know, the the you know, sports and stuff. So it was on for a little while and then the usual, you know, clientele came in and like, you know, what is that? So but it was an interesting moment. We had a lot of fun with that. We laugh about that. Oh, that's you know. great. Yeah. But it was, I mean, you know, you don't want to give the impression that it was just a rough town all the way. I mean, these are, these are you know, good people who worked very, very hard for a living. And well, I mean, I mean, I grew up in a blue collar. There you area, go. Yeah. And so I, I think I have a pretty, I, and I was blue collar for exactly you know, the bulk you of know. my life. Yeah, really. exactly. Um, I, I only recently did I get to sit on my butt for a living. Yeah, but you know, uh, you know, but I, I mean, that's on. I, I always say that's good, honest work. That's solid. It is. Know, that's, and and these are the people who. I mean, they tell you straight, mm-hmm. um, and that's the most of they're honest. You know, they, they work really, really hard. we got guys in my neighborhood now. I mean, they just, that's what they do. They work hard. They look after their families, you know. Right. And you and I both know professionals who that's, you know, that doesn't describe them at all, you know. Right. <laughs> um, you know, they're whatever they're into, it's something else entirely. But but no, the, the, the blue-collar working-class folks, I mean, it almost sounds denigrating to use those terms now, you know. But these are just yeah. these are just working people who are just honest and straight shooting and and uh, I like them. Well, that was the that was the narrative of the majority of people, I think, for exactly. the bulk of the twentieth century. That's exactly and, right, and the nineteenth probably. I mean, you're it was. Just, you you know you you got up you went to work in the morning. <laughs> this is the middle. You class. broke a sweat and yeah. uh, you know you came home and you tried to make sure your family was okay. This, this is the middle class, and um, I remember reading years. It would have been the mid eighty mid eighties. Reading years ago, some article um, where it was like the East Coast, you know, entrenched old money, mm-hmm. and and this article that I read, someone said that these folks are really ticked off. Because the people whose names all end in vowels now have two cars in the garage and a house and a boat on the lake. Mm-hmm. And that's not right. You know, they, they, it's like they should be in servitude or something. Right. And it's like, so that's where my political sentiments come from. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like, hold on, you know. The rising tide's supposed to lift all boats, and if some family whose name ends in a vowel can send their kids to college and that kid can become a doctor, I don't see a problem with that. You know, don't right. play games with that kind of stuff, you know. But there it is. I still remember that article all these years later because it was this mentality, uh-huh. you know, that, that certain people are more privileged than others, right? even though we're supposed to have opportunities in this country, and that's... That's what we were told all along. That's the way it's supposed to be. Well, and not to get too philosophical, but sure. yeah, I mean, I, I do agree that uh, 
Uh, one of the things that, you know, maybe has gone wrong and, and mm-hmm. where we're seeing a lot of sure. problems nowadays right. is that people don't feel like they have the opportunity to, you know, go to school and then get a job. They don't. And and, and get a job that would actually pay right. them enough exactly. to raise a family. Exactly. I was thinking about this because, re- you know, recently there was a, I was just thinking about there used to be a shoe store, mm-hmm. um, you know, down on Cicero Avenue, right. not far from here. And uh, and I remember talking to one of the guys there, and he raised a family. He was a shoe salesman. He didn't even own the shoe store. Exactly. He worked in the shoe store and and made enough money to. And I don't. I'm sure they weren't rich. I'm sure they didn't have three cars or a pool in the backyard. Right. But but it was still enough just off yep. of doing that to That's be able exactly to survive. Right. And now I kind of think like a lot of those jobs They're are gone. now you know right. ten dollars an hour. You know, we'll give you what you can get. And, That's you know, exactly that, right. <laughs> good That's, luck. <laughs> That's the promise that America yeah. fulfilled. I mean, yeah. when I was growing up. You know, my dad did well. He worked yeah. hard and he did well, and he had a white collar job. Mm-hmm. And and but he, you know, was on the same playing field, the same level. The guy that he bought his suits from, right? The guy that we bought the washer and dryer from, the guy who sold him his right. car. You know, everybody's all, kind of in the same neighborhood. Exactly, exactly. If not and physically, at least you exactly. Know. <laughs> I'm, you know, I, I remember their head a, was. Somebody made a comment somewhere. If you think about Bewitched, that old show from, yeah. from the '60s, and Darren was in advertising, I think, or whatever he was. Yeah, in, yeah. you know. And his boss, who, you know, would have been, like, financially and socially, whatever, I suppose, his superior or something, yeah. apparently lived right down the block from him, right, you know, right. in a house that may have been a little bit better, had a little bit wider yard, you yeah. know. There, there, was, there was not this extreme difference, right. you know. I, we, had a, we had a doctor living at the end of our block. That's exactly and, right. And, you know, a guy across the street was, like, a crane operator or something. That's, I mean, that was all, everybody was just kind of yeah, there. That's, <laughs> that's exactly right. And this could square very nicely back to the Great Depression. Of right, right, time. right. Yeah, yeah. But so, so what got you into, uh, what got you, I assume, reading and then writing? Um, usually that's the course people that's, follow. That's the so, course that I took. So what, what was the first thing that you remember loving as a reader, and then how did you get in, started in writing? How did you it, decide it, you wanted it was, to do that? It was adventure stories. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I started to read very, very young, very early, and we had a set of books for children that, that each volume escalated up from, you know, babyhood to, you know, to mature stories, which I guess were like sixth grade, eighth grade type stuff, and I read those all the way through. Um, and, in, and in grade school... Um, I read all the time, you know, mm-hmm. um, the teachers agreed that my, you know, I was at a high reading level and stuff because I just absorbed this stuff. So the, I, I read, interestingly enough, a lot of poetry, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of American fiction and a lot of popular fiction because uh-huh. the the paperbacks at that time, which you could find at the drugstore, reprinted a lot of stories that I found out later on were in the pulp magazines, you know, mm-hmm. because the pulp writers moved from writing for those fiction magazines into paperback and radio, and then into TV, and then and then continuing in popular novels. Right. You know, they were writers, and they were going to write. They were writers. The market and was exactly, and that market was able to sustain them, e- even through the '60s and into the early '70s, kind of. If they had already had a good reputation doing that, mm-hmm. doing that stuff, and they'd been at it for a long time. Well, I know, like in Star Trek, a lot of those people who wrote the first few seasons, at mm-hmm. least in the '60s, were science fiction writers. That's they, exactly they right. They came right out of. Writing that's, books that were on the shelves to writing episodes. That's, of that's TV exactly show. right. It was a community yeah. of people, and that's who you go to if it's this type of story, you know. Yeah. Um, and that's exactly what it was. So, so um, I read tons of that stuff, and I remember thinking I must have been eleventh or twelfth grade, and I'm in the gray drugstore at the Liberty 
plaza in Liberty Township. I don't think Grey Drugstore exists anymore. Mm -hmm. But I, I bought some. I bought some science fiction novels, some reprint paperback, or maybe it was Robert E. Howard, Conan, or whatever, you know, right. or a detective story. I read a few of those, and I remember thinking, this would be so cool. <laughs> these guys, <laughs> you know, these people, and they're mostly guys, but these guys make. A living when they were women, they had to hide the fact. Exactly, a lot of times that you they know, were women. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was C. L. Moore. It was right. Catherine. D. C. Fontana. D. C. Yeah. Fontana and Lee Brackett, L. E. I. G. H. So right. you know, you know, Howard Hawks thought it was a guy. You know, right, when he right. read her first novel. So um, yeah, that was that was the times. Um, but I remember thinking, this must you know, how how do they put a story together? You know, mm -hmm. so I kind of started paying attention to that kind of stuff. But what I was really is, and I read a lot of poetry and tried writing poetry, mm -hmm. and we've all written very bad poetry, you know, if, if we're young and, you know, like that. Um, and then I got, but actually got into movies. Um, so uh, I, I had an 8mm movie, super 8mm movie camera, and I wanted to make movies, and I did make some with some of my friends in high school. And so I, I took very instinctively to that style of storytelling, which I picked mm -hmm. up from watching, I liked silent movies. Kind of a but cinematic. A, a kind of cinematic thing, you know. So you do it as much with pictures, you know, as anything else. Right. So it's You're setting a scene. Exactly. You're setting the scene and you're building it shot by shot into something comprehensible. Mm -hmm. And I read tons of these. I mean, there was, there, for, some, for some reason, there was an awful lot of film books published back then. So, especially when I went to Ohio State University. I think that was time. kind of the era, would that maybe be the film school era? That was the like film school pe era. You know, early people just kind of went from directing Ex stage to directing they film, went, but then exactly. they started to learn, well, this and, is how you set up a and shot. And you learn how this to set up a yeah. shot. So I had, I mean, eventually I got rid of them or they got lost in the famous basement flood that right, we right, suffered right. in 2001. But, I mean, I had I had film theory by... By Pudovkin, you know these uh -huh. Russian artists, you know from the twenties, and Eisenstein, and there were there were other theorists, you know Bela Balas, you know, and his his. I mean, these are, yeah, I suppose some people still know these names, but yeah, that that was the era where people looking back at movies and taking them seriously as an art form, and in fact intellectually seriously as an art form, you know, mm -hmm. which right. is what Eisenstein did and everything, plus just pure good. Popular entertainment, you know, where you can right. build a good story, you know. So Orson Welles and and John Ford, and um and and you know William Wellman and, and these. Well, filmmakers. even going back to Shakespeare, I mean, Shakespeare wasn't. Uh, I mean, all, all that stuff wasn't written because it didn't pack a theater. Exactly. I mean, they, <laughs> exactly. Were, on some level, they were still trying to you know get the the, the, the riffraff the, in. Exactly. You get the riffraff in. Yeah. Um, you know, you get the groundlings or whatever, mm -hmm. but at the same time, you're working on a couple different levels, which is exactly what Shakespeare did, mm -hmm. and a lot of the pulp writers did that as well. Not all of them, by any means, but, right. but a lot of them did, and that's why we still esteem them. How Howard is one of them. Right. Lee Brackett's one of them, you right. know. Um, some of these other writers, that's why we still read them, because it's not just because we want to go back and nostalgically visit them in their moment, you know. Right, right. It's because artistically they were kind of like doing something new, you know. Uh, right, they were pushing Hammett the boundaries of what they could get away with while yes, still they were. making the sale. Exactly. Yeah. So it kind of like reaches this point where, like if you listen to, um, let me think of someone, Brahms or... or um, what, some of the Hungarian composers or whatever, you know, mm -hmm. they go listen to peasant music. Well, right, that's the music right. of the peasants, and it's just for dancing and getting drunk, right, and, right. you know. Well, they took that and, and, you know, added what they knew how to do, because they may have a more sophisticated, maybe, or learned, you know. Right. Uh, they're going to um, take it a different direction. And they're going to take it a different right, direction. Yeah. 
and it's kind of like now it's safe to listen to peasant music, you know. <laughs> right, right. You know, it's okay. They now, cleaned it know? up for the they upper cleaned crust. it up, you know, for the upper <laughs> class, you know. But they, you know, they also brought something interesting to it, so it works on more than one level, and it can engage right. your brain as well as your heart, you know. Right. And that's a very nice thing to be able to do. And Howard did that, you know. Yeah. And a lot of the better pulp magazine writers were able to do. That, I, I so. think most of the best art, uh, just my own personal sure. opinion. Hits both, you know, I, it I fires so on too. all cylinders. So you can, you yep. can tap, if it's music, you can tap your feet to it. But if you dig into it, you go, wow, there's really some exactly. cool stuff going on. Exactly. There. I've had yeah. a discussion of this with a friend of mine in Warren, Ohio. We've discussed this for years. Um, that um, I, I, I quote in, in the book, I get to a point where I talk about mid-cult, you know, and mm-hmm. Dwight McDonald and mid-cult. And there's this kind of safe area in the middle mm-hmm. where it's not too highbrow. Mm-hmm. But it's also not lowbrow. Right. And the discussion we've had is that the really interesting stuff is either highbrow or lowbrow, you know? <laughs> you know? And because the, some of the highbrow stuff will go to lowbrow and then do something interesting with it, you know? Right, right. But the lowbrow stuff is just very interesting for its own sake, right. you know? And, and why not enjoy that for what it is? It's just a detective story, you know? And, and even if it doesn't know more than that, if it's put together right, that's very enjoyable. Right. You know, we can appreciate that, you know, right. the way we can, like geometric design or something, you know. Right. And then if you want more polish to it or something like that, um, well, then go, go so, you know, go to Masterpiece Theater or read, you know, some, you know, writers who do that kind of stuff and maybe they, they fashion But don't you think way. art is always kind of missing out if it's not... Uh, you know, hitting you in the uh, yeah. the reproductive organs. Exactly. No, it's, <laughs> I mean, it, on some level, that uh, art art needs to right. appeal to that. E- even the most highbrow, to me, you know, if I listen to Beethoven as an example, right. I mean, he's stirring emotions. There's no exactly. question about it. He's exactly. diving right into the deep end of the pool. He may do it in some fashion that some of us think is more advanced or right, whatever. Right. But he's still, you know, there's there's right. pulse pounding. And it, exactly. <laughs> and if he didn't do that, mm-hmm. we wouldn't be listening to him now. Exactly. You know, he'd be a footnote. Exactly. He'd be a footnote. We we need to have that. Right. And um and it's just a very basic human thing that that we need that. Mm-hmm. Um if we want to polish it up safely so it's like 60s TV where you get shot in the shoulder but you keep running after the bad guy. Right. Okay, you know, that's 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 pure entertainment. That's right. you know. That's just mindless. It's yep. just my, mindless stuff, you know, but but the stuff um, that's more fundamental than that, you know, they're going to deal with what it's like to get shot in the shoulder, you know. Right, and which is what, kind of what you talk about with Howard. I do. I have less experience with now than reading about Howard. Right. But, but uh, you know, that he, he got into this grinding, you know, like you could feel the battle going on around you if it's he, a fight scene or something. He like that. really did. And he did not. One of the things that made him the writer that, that people turn to and he talks about this, frankly, in his letters to Lovecraft and in any of his, his later stories, you know, where he, he writes Westerns or Conan or, or any of these. Um, he, in his historical novels particularly, which are wonderful, um, he gives you these bursts of violence. As, mm-hmm. as I say, he takes it full stop, you know. Right. So it's kind of working class. You start something, you better be able to finish it, you know. Right. Um, which is a very human sentiment, and that's very real. Well, that's what he does. Right. And so if somebody's in a sword fight or, or whatever it might be, um, we're going to take it the distance. And that's what made him so visceral and real to his mm-hmm. readers. Um, plus, he, he does the blood and guts. He'll put the blood and guts there at the end of the sentence, you know, or at the right. end of the scene. And he was familiar with that. He was the son of a doctor. His, his father was a frontier doctor. Mm-hmm. And um, as, as numerous scholars of Howard have pointed out, I mean... Um, this is the guy you came to see, and it was it was oil. It, the, the oil fields, you know. So you got 
hurt working an oil derrick. You got into a fist fight on Saturday night. Yeah. You know. You were messed um, up. You were messed up. You this know. This wasn't treating the flu. This no, was, it wasn't treating, yeah. you know. You had a gunshot wound, you know, yeah. in the shoulder, you know. Yeah. Um, or you, you fell or you got into a brutal fight, you know, with somebody, you know, whatever it might be. And Mark Finn's talk goes into great detail about this in, in the, the material he's written, his biography of Howard. Mm-hmm. And he, Mark is a Texan, and he, he, you know, grew up in the area where Howard did, you know, a couple generations later. And he's like, this, this is how it was. This was still Frontier, Texas in 1915, 1920, 1925, you know. Right. That was still going on there. A lot of that. These people had only, you know... If they were 40 years old in the fist fight, they'd been there 20 years earlier when they were a young, you know, Right, and before that, it was complete wilderness. Before that, was complete wilderness, you know. So so Howard grew up being completely aware of this kind of stuff. And because of his interest in history um, and his interest in getting the story right, he did not shy away from this stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, some readers complained about the violence. It seemed like he was doing bloody, gory stuff for its own sake. Mm -hmm. But he's, he's on record as saying... You know, I, I I hold back. You know, yeah. if I really wrote about the Middle Ages, you know, that the way that it was, I mean, readers couldn't couldn't take it, and and you know, we know that, you know, from our right. own of history. So, but yeah, he wasn't, you know, he didn't shy away from doing that, and um, it's it's one of the things that makes his work important, I, I think. Well, I, I think that there's, you know, there's always that, uh, you know, the the term pornography is thrown around. A lot sure. these days, but I, I think that you know you can have pornographic violence. Exactly, just violence for its own sake. Exactly, we'll go to the and, movies, and, and that's know? something yeah. that you know personally, right? I'm I'm not interested in, right. but um, but then there's also you know realistic. Somebody got shot and they're they're hurt. Exactly, and, and uh, you know you can you can go the other direction with you know like the A team in the '80s where they shoot five thousand bullets. Exactly, and everybody gets up and walks away. Exactly, you know. Exactly, but, but there's there's a middle ground where you're right. saying, well, this is this is just real. This is just real life. And if you want to be a, a realistic, present a realistic scenario, right. Uh, right. we're going to describe it he, because he was, it's a tough thing. Here. Exactly, and you know he's doing what Cormac McCarthy does. McCarthy does, you mm-hmm. know. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd rather read that, right, and have the closest thing to a good real experience vicariously from a writer who knows what he's talking about, than the A Team, you know, right, right. Um, but yeah, as, as far as violence porn, I mean, it's, it's I've heard people refer to big truck porn because you go Saturdays, you know, right, right. Big, you know, right. and it's like it's it's become a suffix now. You know, for anything that kind of gets you excited, I suppose, or whatever. Right, but I think the best description of it is just something that you know is there to create its own visceral reaction exactly. in and of itself. And exactly, and if it's part of a different, if it's part of you know a, a story, right? Nudity in the movies or violence in the movies or something like that. It's just part of the story. It's, it's all not about the reason the story. you went yep. <laughs> to to go. And, and those are two different things. And I'm not judging one over the no. other. If people are whatever people are into is, is fine with me, but but I do think that there's a you have to draw a distinction between the mm-hmm. point of what they're trying to make, right. and and I think Howard fell into that descriptive category without it being the primary point of the story. He did. I mean, stories are always about scenes and characters, you know, always. But this kind of dovetails into the way that he, why he wrote fiction the way that he did. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I elaborated on it in the book. It always intrigued me because his stories never seemed to be quite like other stories that I'd read, mm-hmm. meaning that they're not plot-driven. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, I recall you making that case exactly. And and um, Dennis Rickard, in fact, did, has written ex- about this, and I, I quote him in the book. 
And what it seems to me was going on um, is that Howard was so interested in history, and he read historical writers. He didn't start out reading fantasy novels, and there were some, mm -hmm. mainly from British writers. You know, that's not what drew him to this. He he liked Gothic fiction, mm -hmm. and there was a limited amount of it back then. Um, but we've all read Edgar Allan Poe and right. and you know stuff like that. So that was a that was pretty much it, you know, back then. But he also grew up hearing. Um, uh, scary stories, unnerving stories, right. um, both of the frontier, but particularly um, from some of the former slaves. Mm -hmm. um, these women who who now served, you know, um, as cooks or washing ladies or whatever. They, you mm -hmm. know, they found their their place in this society, and they would tell him uh, really scary stories. You know, mm -hmm. so as he said, he grew up hearing these Negro, you know, type type stories, and these are wonderful. So we're right back to folklore. You right, know, right. and and that kind of stuff. You know, um, and he, probably uh, personal experience. And personal from some experience. of these people who came out of, you know, I mean, these were still former slaves that were still alive. Right. So they, you know, they had witnessed. Well, there was one woman. Yeah, in, there was one woman. Yeah, who had been brutally treated by her mistress or whatever. You know, mm -hmm. and he used that in one of his later stories called "Pigeons from Hell," which is one of the scariest stories, really, mm -hmm. the twentieth century. So he made use of this stuff. He he took it. And made it into something elevated or polished or whatever you want to call it. So that right. was his symphony. That was his Beethoven, you know. And he made it into this into this great story. Um, but as far as story structure, um, he, he he used to say, I, I don't like, you know, structuring a story or using a plot or anything. Um, he didn't feel he was capable of doing it very well. He did later on, you know, mm -hmm. and some of those stories. Um, and some critics have used that against him. When in fact, what he was doing was kind of breaking interesting ground because what I think he was doing is that he was borrowing story structure from historical novelists like mm -hmm. Harold Lamb and some of these other writers. And if you think about history, there are stories there, but there's no plot line. Okay. Right. <laughs> And so well, that's, I think you described it maybe as time driven or something. Time driven, yeah, exactly. So it's just time is marching on, and that's these are exactly the things it. That happen. And so the tension comes from not who done it or how is this going to complete itself, but what the hell is going on? Right. And Dennis Rickard has, has written about this too. He said a lot of Howard's stories are like a train wreck. Mm -hmm. He opens up with a train wreck. It's like now what are we going to do? You know. Right. And that's history. You wake right. up on the battlefield, you know, right. um, or someone has come through and, and it's after Sherman's March to the Sea in the South, mm -hmm. or or there's an industrial accident or something. Now, yeah. now what are we going to do? And there's no happy conclusion that Not wraps everything up in a right. bow. And that's where Howard starts. Yeah. You know, and so then he unfolds the story. So it's kind of like anything can happen at, at any time. And that's that's a real strong appeal of his stories because if you think about it, it kind of feels more like real life. Right. So even if he's in a in a writing about a venue where there's swamp monsters or you know Conan's fighting something or whatever, you know, um, it still has this gut feeling that that you know I had this feeling, you know, in the car accident I had or what I heard. Right, right. I heard a sad story. Someone died or whatever. He's describing bits of real life. He's describing bits of real life, and then he's packaging it in a way that played to his strengths that he could sell to his publishers, and mm -hmm. that's what he did. And no one else really, no one else had done that before. I don't know of anyone who's really doing it that way now, you know. Mm -hmm. um, never mind the fact that he was a master of language um, and, and could use certain elements of grammar and syntax to really keep the story moving, you know. Right, right. Um, so he was doing a couple of things, you know, in there. Um, 
and his writing is very cinematic and poetic, and, and we could talk about that for a while, you know, endlessly <laughs> almost, you know. So, well, I want to touch because I feel yeah. like we're uh, I, I, I see some parallels, and I'm not saying you're you're the new Robert E. Howard or he's no. the old you no, or anything no like is. that, but but uh, but you know, so you came out of this right uh, kind of environment, yeah. uh, this rough and tumble environment. A little you bit. You decide you want to, say, you know, maybe not the not yeah. a frontier. I wasn't a street kid. You weren't, but, you weren't talking. But, you weren't getting tales from exa- former slaves. But, <laughs> exactly. Um, but you, but you, you still came out of a, a, a the rust belt, a solid rust exactly. belt city in every exactly. sense of the word. Yeah. And uh, so you you start writing. What was the first book that you sold, or what story? What how, how did how did that begin for you? Well, yeah. that's that's what's interesting. I, I read all this fiction, and so um, I I went to school to study cinema. I went to Ohio State to study mm-hmm. cinema because that's what I really loved. Mm-hmm. And um, Wayne Shuth, um, I still remember Professor Wayne Shuth um, telling me that um, if I really wanted to to make movies. Either go to New York or, or go to Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was right about that. He said, if you stay in Ohio, you're going to make industrial films. Nowadays, the fine. answer would just be Hollywood. Exactly. Yeah. Now it would just be Hollywood, you know. Um, but, but NYU had, you know, had, had film programs and stuff. Um, well, I couldn't afford to do that. I didn't know people out there or anything, you know. So then I concentrated on, on the writing. And I, I did well enough on essays that I had... Um, uh, my my English professor for English 103, Mrs. Summerson, I remember her name, mm-hmm. said, you write really well. Have you thought about majoring in English? <clears throat> well, they did it for me. Um, I was already thinking about writing, and I read all these stories in junior high school mm-hmm. and high school and everything. So over that summer, I decided to to take the plunge and, and try to write, it, to write stories. Now, I'd also um, read a lot of comic books, because we all did back then. Mm-hmm. So the first thing I did... Um, was to try to write comic book stories mm-hmm. and sell them to Creepy and Eerie magazine because they did anthology stories. Yeah, there were a lot of those. There were a I lot of those back then. Back there then, were, yeah. yeah. So I came close to selling one of them. It was almost like an H.P. Lovecraft style story. I came close to selling one of them. Um, and uh, But that didn't pan out, so I started writing short stories mm-hmm. when I went, when I went um, back to Ohio State that fall. Um, and the first one, in fact, was a Robert E. Howard style sword and sorcery story. Mm-hmm. So I tried, I tried writing that, and it took forever to get it to where I felt it was right. I don't think I ever did submit that one. Um, but I decided that if I were going to, to major in English, I could save my folks money, because at that time my parents paid for my college education. You could still mm-hmm. do that back then. Uh, and uh, so I came back home. And it was a mistake in, in one sense, because... Once you fly the coop, you should probably, like, build your own nest, you know. Right, right. But I came back to save my parents' money, and I made a little office for myself down down in their basement, and I just, I hit it hard. I started typing like crazy, mm-hmm. um, writing everything that I could think of, and most of it was, you know, fantastic. So some of it was first-person type stuff to try mm-hmm. to sell, you know. But most of it was fantastic fiction of some sort because of the fanzines. Mm-hmm. Now, nowadays, if you were doing this, you would you would go online, you know, yeah, to, to you'd post, just post it, on to post Reddit it or yeah. something. Yeah. But in those days, it was fanzines that that really entrepreneurial type people put out, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> and there were any number of them, <clears throat> and they might be out there for for a few a few years, and then you know a lot of them didn't didn't uh, survive very right, long. Kind of hand mimeographed some that, of them. Some and, of them were yeah. hand mimeographed. The one that I that I sold most of my stuff to, and originally you didn't sell anything. You just uh-huh. you couldn't pay money for stories. Right. But it was Space and Time magazine. Gordon, uh-huh. Gordon Lindsner was the editor, and Gordon's still around. And 
in retrospect, it was kind of like the Weird Tales magazine, mm -hmm. you know, reincarnated. Because if you look at the list of those of us who were writers and, and artists and stuff who who later on achieved some level of success, you know, mm -hmm. or, or some level of professionalism, um, nearly all of them had something in space and time. That was the gateway. You okay. Know, for whatever reason, Gordon could judge talent, and he would accept this stuff. That's a good talent. Oh, <laughs> man. Yeah. And he, he, he took my stuff. You know, we clicked. I mean, he liked the way that I wrote. Mm -hmm. So the first story I had in print was one that was totally politically incorrect now. Uh -huh. But as you grew up in the 50s and 60s, we didn't think twice about it. It was called the Apache Curse. And it was about a guy who's cursed by an Apache medicine man because he made war upon the Apaches. And then it has this gruesome ending where, where he, he um, uh, does to himself all the brutal you know, things to his own body that he used that to he do did. to torture Apaches. You know? And um, so it's totally politically incorrect. Um, but, but the Apaches get the last laugh. But the so. Apaches get the last yeah. laugh, you know. And uh, I was uh, I was on the right side politically, at least, you know. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so after that, I I veered between writing little short stories, um, or I veered between writing horror short stories, mm -hmm. and what you would call, I guess, some of them were sword and sorcery, some of them were were more like the fiction that Clark Ashton Smith wrote back mm -hmm. in the '30s. Um, which is um, just kind of weird, kind of gothic and weird, but set in in fantastic settings. Mm -hmm. So those, in fact, are going to be the next book of mine that come out. That comes out. I've, You're collecting those. Yeah, stories I've, I've collected those. You know, fantasy stories, and I've polished them up. And so that's I'm finishing it up now. So that'll be that'll be the one that comes out after the Howard book. Nice. Um, but that's the one that got me started in in writing this stuff, and um, I did venture. Um, I decided that I read so many stories in Writer's Digest um, about the horror of rejection slips, you know, uh -huh. and people would. This is Writer's little, Digest. This is Writer's Digest. Okay, there's a the Reader's day. Digest. There might as well be. Well, there was a Writer's there's Digest. Writer's yeah. Digest. Okay. It's still around. It was uh -huh. kind of like the the Bible for that kind of stuff. There was one called the Writer, uh -huh. um, which is a little more polished, and it came out of Boston. But Writer's Digest was from Cincinnati, I think. And it was it was the 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 you know hammer and nails of how you put a story together back then, and uh, Stephen King had an early article article and they're talking mm -hmm. about the ten bears. Here's the scariest things that people react people react to in horror right, stories, right, you know. Right. Um, but um, uh, people were complaining. You said, yeah, I cut you off there. No, no, that's okay. It's like, oh, it's terrible to get rejection slips. Nobody understands me. You know, why don't people publish my stuff? So I said, I'm getting past this in a hurry. So I wrote some goofy sword and sorcery story, and I sent it to um, to Ted White at mm -hmm. Fantastic Magazine. And they were publishing these lame Conan ripoff stories by Sprague de Camp and Lynn Carter. Mm -hmm. And so well, I could write something just as lame. Why don't they publish me? So I sent it to Ted White, and, and it came right back in the mail, and I got this official little, you know, pre-programmed, you know, automatic, yeah. you know. Thank you very much. Yeah, exactly, you know. Uh, rejection slip from from uh, uh, from fantastic stories, and so I said, "Now I'm okay. I've I've been formally rejected by professionals, <laughs> and so now Which, I could who hasn't who so, hasn't? You know, but yeah. I think now I can go on. Now it's not going to hurt as hard, you know. Right. If I get more rejection slips, you know, and I continued to write for the fanzines, mm -hmm. and I I might send a few out, you know, to like Fantastic again or some magazines somewhere. I got a list of what I did. Um, or men's magazines, because back then, they would publish a lot of fiction. It's before mm -hmm. they just became, like, skin magazines, you know. Right, You right. could hit the second or third tier of these men's magazines, 
And they published early Stephen King horror stories. I mean, these are the people who originally published. I remember seeing Ross old McDonald. copies of Playboy where they exactly. had like, famous people writing all the time. And you know, yeah. I saved the one where Robert Block was it Robert Block, Ray Russell. I don't know two or three of of you know these uh, these idols. You know, uh-huh. from the fifties and sixties were in it. You know. Um, uh, so yeah, they all published that stuff, but then there were tiers below that, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but they all published fiction, yeah. and they would publish not not just sexy fiction, you know, but they would publish you know mystery stories uh-huh. and gruesome horror stories and just suspense stories. I mean, so you really is, could tell people you were reading it for the article. You really could tell people you were reading it for the articles and short stories for a while, yeah. And then and then about the mid to late seventies, uh, that all shifted, mm-hmm. and it just became. Um, uh, you know, they weren't publishing that. Kind of, maybe a few of them were, you know, but but. Right. Um, well, I uh, suspect the the fact that there were, and I I don't I don't have any I have any evidence for this, but I suspect the fact that in the seventies, more outrageous magazines started to hit the. Well, they did, and and, and so they they had to they felt they had to go in that direction to compete right, more. That's, that's it was exactly no longer it. just a magine targeted at men it was right. now it really is a, a porn skin it was magazine, it was a porn they, they became porn yeah. skin magazines and where I used to go to get my reading material which was which was Gerard book and news mm-hmm. in downtown Gerard Ohio um, the the guy who who owned it and ran it Louis Batella I mean he had you had to go up a couple of steps and and then you were you were he had a, a whole station of these things you know mm-hmm. so it wasn't within five or six years it wasn't just um a couple of skin magazines, you know, right. that still published horror stories and Stephen right. King horror stories. It was a raft of this stuff where it was basically porn because yeah. there was a porn explosion in the 70s, you know. And so that took care of any dreams of trying to write for men's magazines and maybe getting a penny a word, you know, mm-hmm. for some suspense story to be in Cavalier magazine or something. They all changed, you know. Yeah. Even yeah. the you know the first, second, third tier magazines all changed, you know. So it was, it was the fanzines or it was... Um, uh, fantastic, mm-hmm. or maybe Ellery Queen or something like that. You had to right. go to the digest then, you know, is what yeah. it was. Amazing stories. Amazing story stories, wrong, that right. kind of yeah. stuff. But before um, I, I hit them very hard, I'd actually sold my first novel. And that was a direct direct result of being so familiar with, with Robert E. Howard. Okay, well, that was my conversation with David C. Smith. Um, you can find his stuff on Amazon, and uh, he, he's got a number of books on there. There are some other books that are out of print, but uh, um, I think some of them are going to be coming back. He's got a couple of deals in the works, which I think we're going to cover next week in that conversation. So, uh, you know, look him up. Uh, if you're into um, some of the horror, uh, sword and sorcery, fantasy genre, or if you want to check out the Robert E. Howard book, a number of those things are available on Amazon and I'm sure elsewhere as well. That's it. I will be back. I will be back. I will be 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 be. I will be back next week. No, two weeks from now. Two weeks. Two weeks. That's my schedule. I'll be back two weeks from now with part two of the David C. Smith interview, and it's going to be great. And I'll see you then. <laughs> <laughs>